Top Hill Recording Podcast, episode 13. I'm Brad, back here again tonight with Neil. How you doing, Neil? Doing good, man. How are you tonight? I'm good. Awesome. So you're out in the rain today delivering mail, and now you're in the dry podcast room ready to do another episode of Top Hill Recording. Heck yeah. All right, so we have my uncle, Andy Weston, in the house tonight. Hello, Brad. Neil. Hey, Hello, buddy. Uncle Butch. Butch. That's, that's the first thing you're going to have to tell us. You know, we, <laughs> okay. we, were, we were wondering how in the world, everybody in the world calls you Andy, but you've always been Uncle Butch to me. But before you even start that story, we need to get into this bourbon. Absolutely. Let's do that first. It well, always leads to a, a little bit easier conversation after I was the wondering when that was going to start. Do right yeah. now. Okay. All right. Tonight, Hancock's Reserve. And I've never had it. It's a single barrel. Ooh, it's the President's. What's that? Is that the actual? Hancock's President's Reserve. Okay. What, what do you think of that label? I and mean, what do you think when you first look at it? It looks presidential. It's awfully simple, <laughs> don't you think? Very simple, really. So, I don't know. Hancock's Reserve is another Buffalo Trace product. <laughs> Dude. But Buffalo Trace, it's like a stepchild they don't want to acknowledge. You can't find... Hancock's Reserve listed on their website. They don't do any advertising to Hancock's. Nothing. What? So is it just bottled by Buffalo Trace, or did they actually distill it and do everything? No, it's uh, Buffalo Trace Mash Bill Number 2, which is the the higher rye mash bill. It's like Blanton's Elmer T. Lee. One of the reasons I thought you might like this one is you like Elmer T. Lee, and this is like a... uh, there's nothing offensive about this bourbon. This is a good entry level. Somebody wants to start drinking bourbon, start here. The perfect pop. So, so if, if you like uh, 80 proof or 90 proof, you're just a beginner. Is that what you're saying, Brad? I wouldn't say that, but you, you'll like this. Do you like 80 and 90 proof? I like 80 and 90 like proof. This, <laughs> he does, this is uh, actually, what, what's it, 88.9? 88.9. Bottom of the J. Here we go. Yes, there you go, Neil. Here we go. I thought about this all day. Perfect. Ooh, I think it is pretty good. Any day that I'm out in a, a day like hey, this. That is pretty good. There's a song by Shannon Lawson, who was with the Glutes, who I've talked about Shannon before, uh, called Rainy Day Whiskey. So to have a rainy day whiskey with you guys on the podcast is awesome. So cheers, guys. Cheers. Cheers. All right, Uncle, so you were getting ready to tell us the story of how Butch developed. Well, Dad was in the Army, and he was gone. And Mother was determined that I was not going to be called Junior. And at that time, in, there was a cartoon character, Bulldog, named Butch. And he was popular in a lot of cartoons. And my Aunt Doris, who was Dad's sister said, why don't we call him Butch? Because I had fat jaws that hung down. (laughs) And Butch stuck. And so the family still calls me Butch. What about in school, like high school? No, when I I was in school, every year they would call me Andrew. And I'd say, no, my name is Andy. And so they started calling me Andy. Get to know me better, I might let you call me Butch. Yeah. Now, the kids I grew up with on Granger Road and Chieftain Drive, they knew me as Butch. All right. There you go, Neil. Pretty simple answer. All right. So take us back. 
when you first remember getting started in music, or maybe even if you want to talk a little before that on what you remember about music at early age? Well, when I first was really intrigued or, or got excited about it, I was 12 years old, and Mom and Dad had taken us to Indian Trails Shopping Center. I think they were shopping. I don't know. But there was a flatbed truck in the parking lot and a crowd around it. And have you ever heard of Sonny James sing? Have you ever heard a song, I, Young I Love? So. Young well, Love. Young Love was a really popular song. Sonny James had the, uh, the original hit, and then Tab Hunter and a couple others recorded it. But he was performing a show in the Indian Trail Shopping Center on the back, back of that flatbed truck pushing that record. Sonny no, James. Sonny James, Is he yes. from Louisville? Oh, no. Sonny James was out of Nashville. He was a big star in country music for about 10, 12 years. No kidding. And uh, he had some good songs out, but that was the first uh, time that, that I was really, man, I like that, you know. So did you guys have televisions at this point? We got our first television in 1952. I guess then, if you wanted to get out and be heard, you were willing to play shopping center oh, parking yeah, lots and yeah. things. There was uh, a couple of country music shows on television. One of them was Pee Wee King. Pee Wee King lived in, uh, I think it was out in uh, Prospect, out in that area. But Pee Wee King and the Pee Wee King band was very, very big. They were the first band to ever use a drummer on the Grand Ole Opry. Really? Yeah. And, uh, of course, he's in the... Uh, Hall of Fame. At one time, Pee Wee had, from what I have heard and read, he had nine television shows a week, had his own plane that he flew his band from one city to the other to for those shows. Then I think the, the next real impression on me was around 1958, 1959. There was a guy who went to Southern High School. His name was Jerry Cox, and Jerry Cox had a band called the Cavaliers, and they cut several records in, here in town, and I went to see them down at the Playtorium. They were playing a, a dance down at the Playtorium. I was watching these guys play guitars and sing, and man, I mean, I wanted to do that. You know, I was 14, 15 years old. Now, were they just a local band? They were a local band, but they had a pretty good-sized regional hit. I looked them up on uh, YouTube and on the Internet today when I was uh, thinking back to my memories. He had more songs out than I realized. When I was in the eighth grade at Southern, his band played in the auditorium at Southern, and we watched them, uh, got out of class to go see Jerry Cox in a variety show there. Of course, that stuff, when you feel music— it gets into you. You weren't playing guitar or anything at this point no. in eighth grade? Did you sing? Because you, you, with a voice like that, I couldn't imagine well, you not uh, walking around just singing. I, or... I sang around the house. Okay. Mother sang a lot, too. And Mom could really yodel. I mean, boy, she could yodel. And I'm sure Ron remembers that. I remember that a little bit. She wouldn't do it very often, but every now and then she would. If it's something, uh, anything else with your voice, if you don't keep doing it, Mm -hmm. you know, you're going to lose the ability to do it. 
when Ron and I were kids, and Gary, Gary was much younger, he's seven years younger than me. Mom, when she was young, around the house, she used to sing all the time, and she'd have that radio going all the time. Kind of immersed in music a little bit. And then in the fourth grade, I started taking clarinet lessons. Why I didn't go with a saxophone goes back to my dad. My dad, of course, he grew up in the swing area with the big bands, and he was a big Tommy Dorsey fan. When I came home from school with the paper about getting into the school band, and what instrument would you like to play, there was the clarinet and the saxophone, and dad says, well, that clarinet, that's really good. That's really pretty. So I went with the clarinet. If I'd have gone with a saxophone, I could play a, rock, a lot of rock and roll Man. music. Not a like clarinet in a rock band. Not a, not no. a clarinet in a rock band. <laughs> yeah. uh, you did have some rock and roll flute come around like yeah. in the 60s. Well, and then 70s. Ron Burgundy brought it back. <laughs> <laughs> well, after, after I saw Jerry Cox, when I turned about 15, I... I was trying to think where I got the money to do this. And the only thing I can guess is that Dad gave it to me. I don't know. But I caught a bus. I walked to the bus station from, not the station, but where you get the bus, down around the National Turnpike from home, and caught a bus and went downtown and recorded a tape at a little studio there, a cappello. I don't even remember what song it was. I had looked on the records that Jerry Cox had had, and it was Frantic Records. Well, Frantic Records was put on by WAKY, the radio station. (laughs) So I take this tape down to WAKY, and I tell them, well, I'm interested in this uh, Frantic Record label. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like they're going to be really impressed with me. So uh, they listened to it. Back in those days, they would listen to things. So you you played the clarinet. You didn't play the guitar. Or Not you sung even. around the house, and you just decided you were going to go to the recording studio and record a song a cappella. Yeah. <laughs> I've usually had a little bit of confidence. I was going to say that. They probably said, we're going to listen to this tape. This kid's got some moxie. Just I mean, he went down there, and now he's just knocking on our door saying, you know what? I think I'm interested in you yeah. guys. So yeah. then, so then well, you take the recording, and you go to the biggest radio station in Louisville? Well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> where, so where, tell where, him, I think you want to play this. Where are you going to go? I was, you know. So, well, they gave me an audition with the Carnations. Really? Yeah. The audition was at band practice, and it was over, I think it was in Jeffersonville, Indiana. Dad drove me over there. Uh, I had no stage presence. I stood there and sang like I was afraid of the microphone, and I didn't get with the carnations. <laughs> okay. But, you know, that— uh, Well, you know what? It's pretty impressive to get a tryout, since well, you've never yeah. even done yeah. anything yeah. except play the clarinet. Yeah. And— uh, <laughs> Hold on. Can I, let's think about that, man. Well, Seriously. <laughs> Of course you're going to be nervous. You've never sang in front of anybody. No. Your well, first, is that really like your first time singing? Is No, no. Okay. I had sang in front of somebody. I was about 13 years old. The competition was kind of like the Ted Mack Amateur Hour. If you look that up, that was a national show on TV. Ann Margaret got her start there. Uh, several others. I can't think of who they were. But they were in Louisville auditioning people. So I was about 13, and uh, 
applied to sing, and Mom and Dad took me down there. I sang Harbor Lights. Uh, Harbor Lights was a 40s or 50s uh, song at that time. I don't even remember having any accompaniment with it. It was a cappella thing there. Somebody must be telling you or you're hearing from somebody that you've got an above-average voice well, to I don't go know. and do these things. I don't know about being above-average voice, but uh, I just like the thing, and I thought, well, let me take that back to the first grade. Uh-oh. Now we're going. <laughs> Reverse. <laughs> the first grade, and I think uh, Miss Shields said the same thing to Ron. Miss Shields was the music teacher. She'd have each of the kids come up and sit at her desk and sing. I went up and I sat down and I sang, and she started giving me all these accolades in, in class about it. Oh, yeah, how, how he holds it, no, that blah, blah, blah. It really embarrassed me, really. I guess it gave me a little confidence, too. First grade to 13 years old, you didn't sing in front of anybody else after that? Oh, yeah. Just just a bit, a bit, well, little bit here and there? Yeah. Uh, the, the first time that I really would say I sang in, in front of anybody of my peers was in the, about the ninth grade. One of my schoolmates, a guy by the name of Horace Horgan, played a guitar. And he, and he was a, a pretty good guitar player for a teenage kid, 15, 16 years old. It was Christmas, the day before going out on Christmas break. He brought his guitar to school he played the guitar in front of the class. I think it was a math class. And I sang Stagger Lee. Boy, the classroom, they liked it. I think they probably just liked it because it, we weren't doing math, you know. <laughs> Anything but math. But, yeah. And so that was, I guess, the first time of, of playing in front of anybody. Were you nervous then? No. Then I did uh, talent shows. Junior played... Uh, the guitar on that, and it was one night, Elvis Presley, one night. And he hit that da 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 And then I did one night. And a woman, one of the mothers in the audience, said something to my mother about me lip-singing to a record. And my mom said, he was not lip-singing. A <laughs> <laughs> mom could get a little offended, yeah. you know. She's protective of her boys. <laughs> so you were an Elvis fan. Oh, I was, yeah, I was an Elvis Along with fan. everybody else? Yeah. Uh -huh. and, and Mom and Dad, both, they both liked Elvis. Then I did a, a, another talent show the following year. During that same period of time, I played the, the lead role in a play, a school play called Creepy Crest. I was 15 or 16 at the time, and I got to kiss the girl in it at the end of the play. And she was a pretty girl. <laughs> Her name was Carol Rafferty, and she was in class with me, and she was a very pretty girl. <laughs> and uh, so it wasn't a difficult part to play. Okay, know? yeah. And then uh, my senior year, I played Scrooge in A Christmas Carol. At the same time that this is going on, you know, you've got football and track and all that kind of stuff going on, but also Junior Horgan introduced me to a guy named Sonny Evans. And Sonny was starting a, a band over in Pleasure Ridge Park. Uh, I went over there. I didn't play any instruments. I was just a singer. The name of the band was the Saxons. We rehearsed, and uh, I became part of the band, and 
there was a junior was a guitar player and Sonny and uh, there were a couple other guitar players. I think one, I think Terry Ward was with us at that time and I don't remember who else it was. We practiced a lot, but we never had any gigs as the Saxons, but we were, we were developing ourselves. Junior left and Terry Ward took over as a lead guitar where a guy named Jim Woosley came in. I don't I don't remember the of the drummers on these these bands at all, except for one. I'll get to it later. How old are you now? Sixteen, because I'm so driving. You're still in high school. And you're still oh, yeah. not playing guitar. No, I didn't do that until until I got in college. What is up with the Westons not playing instruments? Well, until Dad, like... Dad said the same thing to me while I was with the band. He said, "Son, why don't you?" play guitar or something, get your guitar and play with the man. And I said, Dad, I'm a singer. <laughs> I said, I don't need to play guitar, <laughs> which is dumb. Which, yeah. well, you just didn't know how much fun you were missing. Yeah, really. Yeah. Well, I knew I was having fun as a singer. Yeah, you were having too much fun. Uh, you were having enough. <laughs> uh, we, had, we played a few gigs uh, as the Starfires. The Saxons changed their name to the Starfires when Horgan left and Terry Ward took over lead. And we played some high schools. You know, we played at Fairdale High. We played at Pleasure Ridge, and some other some other places. Then, about 1961, we changed the name to the Ultratones. Still the same band, but we changed our name to the Ultratones. So the Ultratones were name. around quite a while then. Well, the Ultratones, yeah, they were. We played with the Ultratones. We played. Uh, you know about uh, Club 68 and uh, the Horseshoe. You played uh, both those? Oh, uh, yeah. And how many piece band was the Ultratones? At that time, there were about six of us at that time, uh, counting Ron, because Ron played with us a lot. Was that when he was a kid running around trying not to get kicked out of the well, bar? Well, let's put it this way. I'm, <laughs> at that time, I was 17. Ron's four years younger than me. <laughs> okay. So, so he's 13. Okay. Golly. Uh, well, we'll get to the bars in a minute, okay? <laughs> yeah. But uh, <laughs> we uh, we were playing uh, at these clubs in the, the country club, Whispering Hills Country Club. Yeah, I can. Uh, I remember Ron telling about that we played with the USO several times. We really had a good time. You know, we would meet at the YMCA. And we'd load up in a bus. There was a girl dancers and girl singers and different acts. And we'd get on the bus and we would go down to Fort Knox to play for soldiers. How often did you do that? I guess we did that four or five times. Was this before you played in Lebanon? That was all during the same, same. period of time. Okay. Yeah. It was just whatever gig came up. But the Ultratones played a lot? Ultratones did play a lot. Ultratones was a pretty good band. So when y'all would go to the uh, down to Fort Knox and on a bus, there would be several groups of you guys. So it would be basically the show is going on a bus down to it was the show Fort Knox. It was the show going down to Fort Knox. A good analogy would be the Dick Clark Caravan okay. of Stars. It was everybody, everybody got into the bus. They were all together. All the instruments were packed up uh, underneath the bus and went to the uh, Fort Knox, went around behind the stage or behind the auditorium, unloaded, went in, set up, and then put on a show. So you all brought the show. Yes, and we, we had good crowds, too, because the soldiers, uh, it, it was always full. Those were the days when Fort Knox was loaded and very, very active. So your, the presence oh, yeah. there was huge, right? Oh, yeah. So every time yeah. you guys played, it was a... A real party for them as well as for you well, guys. Yes, a good show uh, it, and... it was fun. We'd sing and 
going down and we'd sing coming up. <laughs> then uh, in 62, uh, music caused me to make a really bad decision. Uh-oh. I, I was a decent athlete. I had three schools. One was University of Kentucky, one was Eastern, and one was Georgetown College. You were state runner-up in what was then the 100-yard dash, right? I went to the state. I was beaten in the heat by the fastest guy in the state of Kentucky, which knocked me out of running in the final. So I went to the state in the 100, and I was, I was pretty fast, but he was faster. So you guys were state runner-up as a football team, and you were running back on the football team. Our backfield was the fastest backfield in the state of Kentucky, and that's not, that's not a hyperbole, because our backfield went to the state in the 880 relay. And again, Manuel beat us, but Manuel had a guy named Sherman Lewis, you may have heard of Sherman Lewis or not. He was a professional football player. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was really fast. We were fast. He was faster. But we still had a fast backfield. We were playing. The, the Ultratones was playing at a, at a place called Lee's Lounge on Bardstown Road at long come track season. We were playing three nights a week, Thursday night, Friday night, and Saturday night. For a, a young guys, we were making pretty decent money. They were paying us good. And I quit the track team to play rock and roll in a bar. And I mean, any interest from these other from these schools dropped off. I still have a couple of letters in my file cabinet to eat my heart out every now and then, you know. <laughs> Just to torture yourself. Just to torture myself. Let's see, what, let's see uh, uh, something that I did that really screwed up. So that's a regret then. Oh, it's a re- big regret. I've had a lot of regrets because of music. It's kind of, you just never get it out of your system. So I, I left uh, the Ultratones in, in 62 to go to college down at Western. I stayed down there one semester and came back. And I went back with them, and we played places like uh, UK fraternities. We played Western Kentucky fraternity. We played a lot of different places. We kind of mirror each other in a, in a weird way. And in, in that, going to school, I mean, I, I did go to school with some intent to play some ball, but I, I didn't. And But I really don't have any regrets about it. Do you really have regrets about not going with track and, 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 and football? Yeah. And football. So were you being recruited as a football player? Or as Both. A- through the coach. They were contacting me through the coach, mm-hmm. and they sent me a letter, a couple of letters. Like I say, I've, I've kept a couple of the letters just to, I don't know why, I've still got homework from the seventh grade story. <laughs> I mean, really. So when Neil went to school at UK, he went two semesters, so he he, he doubled your output. <laughs> well, but, but he did. No. He did have a 0.0 GPA. And twice. No, no I went back to, <laughs> I went back, uh, to Western in 64, down through the fall semester of 64 and the spring semester of... Uh, 65. So so do you think that if you would have stuck with track and mm-hmm. finished out your season, that's your senior year, I'm assuming, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. It was. You finish that and you go on to the next thing. What would be different? I mean, would it would just you would get the education sooner or would you? I just love playing. 
So it's it's more about the not being able to play yeah. the sport yeah. than than regretting the actual school or anything right. else. It's it's the glory days are over and we're moving on to the next thing. Well, I think that's what it was. More than anything. Yeah. Okay. When uh, when I first went to Western, I did walk on the football team. So you did get to play again? No. I stayed two weeks. Oh. I got my little red and white beanie that I was able to walk around campus with and I thought you were going to say that's when they were still wearing leather helmets. So. No. <laughs> Screw you, Neil. I'm sorry. <laughs> but, uh, I'm just kidding. No, they, all, the, all the freshmen, we got to wear beanies. Got to wear them? Yeah, really? Did they make you? Was it oh, haze? No, were no. you being haze? <laughs> it, was, it was 114 degrees in, okay. in August. Well, let what me tell you. Got to? I had a beanie on, and there was a girl in there in a restaurant that I had taken out to one of the ball games. And I walked into the this little restaurant with the beanie on, you know, red and white beanie, showed you a, a freshman football player. And I heard one of the girls say something, and she says, yeah, I went out with him. <laughs> you know, so, and, but the reason I stopped two weeks, we, you know, lifting weights and practicing with the team, there was a, a team meeting. They had all the freshmen come into the upperclassmen's rooms, and we were going to have to do their laundry. And I said, I'm not doing your damn laundry, <laughs> you know. And well, good for you. So I, I said, piss on this, and I... Yeah, this is not how I thought it was going to be. Yeah. I'm not dreaming about this. I'm, I'm done yeah. with this college football. I'm going to go play music. But, so uh, when you were down there, yeah, even during that period, were you playing and singing and, and still active as a musician, or did you kind of shut? Was music and sports two separate things, and once you were kind of doing one, you had to focus on that? Well, not... No, because my sophomore and junior year, I played music with the bands and on weekends and things like that. I still played football and ran track. The only thing it was, uh, my senior year, as we were playing at Lee's Lounge three nights a week, I was wore out by the time we yeah. got home in the morning and then have a, a Friday afternoon track meet, yeah. and you didn't get home till really late. Well, and then if you have a Friday track meet, you're going straight from that track meet back to the bar to, 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 yeah, to do and, it again. And that's what it was. Uh, and, and, yeah, and I liked that little bit of money that I was making at doing it. So do you think it was more of the money? or? or I think it, it, it probably was. That was the deciding factor. But I really liked playing music in a bar. That, yeah. You know, I, I enjoyed it. Yeah. Uh, Ronald enjoyed it. He was 14 years old. You of course know? he did. He was like, I'm supposed to have been in bed two hours ago. Mom would have me in bed if I'm not at this bar right now playing music. Now, my best <laughs> my best friend at that time was a guy named Butch Matheny. All these and, Butches. And Butch was 19 and while we're at Lee's Lounge. And Butch is checking IDs at the door. Oh, my gosh. And then after he would get— So I'm sure none of your friends got in. <laughs> none. More of, the crowd, more of the crowd was in. Butch would go behind bar and start tending bar. <laughs> so, you know, we had a good time. I was good. <laughs> That probably had something to do with the decision making at that point in time in your life. So you're you're at Western Kentucky in 1964. Yes, that was your last year at Western. Did you well, come back with the Ultratones from there? When I left Western, that was in the spring semester of '65. That summer, I read in the paper that they were auditioning a summer stock, and they were looking for someone to play Prince Charming in Cinderella. 
And so I went and auditioned for the for the part of Cinderella. Of, of Cinderella, I knew it. I Cinderella. knew it. He has that such a high register, and it sounds so good that they're like definitely yeah, well, good. They said, "Are you a baritone or a tenor?" And I said, well, "I'm a high tenor. I'm a high but, tenor, uh, and I'm good looking. Look how pretty I am." But uh, I auditioned for Prince Charming and and got it. And uh, with the Summerstock Theater, I appeared with uh, on stage with. Uh, Jack Palance, who in the 40s and wow. 50s was a really big star. Heck yeah. I'll tell you a little story about it. In the in the play, I, in the first part of it, I'm just a dead person who stares ahead, no, no lines. But in the second part of the play, uh, I'm a sports caster, and he is a boxer. It's Heaven Can Wait is the play. And he's supposed to come out. He's just won the, the championship. And I slap him on the back. And I, great fight, great fight, champ. You know, I'm supposed to start interviewing him. And everything's cool. Well, opening night, he comes out. And he's, you know, he's got the blood and everything on it. And I slap him on the back. And he turns to me. He says, get your damn hands off me. In the show? Yeah. And, I mean, pins and needles went all through me. But I, I just went and... Finished out my my lines. You know? <laughs> so what was the story there? Well, after the play, after that, he came up to me and he said, Andy, he said, I'm sorry. He said, when you slapped me on the back, he said, it hurt, and I forgot my lines. <laughs> <You know? laughs> he said, but you, you did a hell of a job. <laughs> and, uh, and this was a, another situation where opportunity knocks and you don't open the door because when he was leaving he had he was there with his wife and his two daughters and they were about my age i was 21 he said andy he said when you come out to california he said look me up i never went to california you know but that was a an opportunity during that period of time i joined the army reserves when summer stock was over i went to work for general electric and was called up for basic training after basic and AIT, I took a job and went to was still not doing anything with music or acting or anything, and I was uh, sent to, to Dallas, Texas. While I was in Dallas, Texas, used to go to parties quite a bit, and I, I'd sing. By then, I'm, I am playing a guitar a little bit because I started doing that at Western. There was a guy there, and I'll tell you a little bit more about this in a few minutes. He knew somebody. I, I sang at a couple of the parties just screwing around. And he knew a guy that owned a, a recording studio down there. Uh, back in the, back, I think it was during the 60s, because this was in 67, uh, there was a couple called Paul and Paula, and they had some national hits. And they recorded at this studio. He sets up a time for me to go down to the studio and they have some music down there. And it was another one of those things where I get in front of that mic and no matter what I try to do, it just don't, it just doesn't work out. It doesn't sound, you know, it, it sounds like crap. The guy, the guy with the studio says, I just don't think we can use you on anything. You know? Nerves? I don't know. I mean, I didn't feel nervous, but it, uh. It was almost like I was trying. Have you ever heard of the singer Mel Torme? Mm -hmm. You know, he was here. You know why I know who Mel Torme is? The show Night Court. 
the judge from Night Court. That was his favorite musician. Well, That's the only reason. <laughs> well, he had a very mild manner. So and, you know, and I don't sing mild manner, but I was singing like Mel Torme. You, know? <laughs> you just decided you're going to sing like well, Mel Torme I that don't night. Know Had why. you been in a studio at that point before? Because there just, is such a different sound in the just studio. The only time I had done any, any type of was that acapella thing downtown. That, that I took years. the wacky. Yeah. So that was, that was, you know, it was different. I've never been in, into that situation. I, I take that back. We had gone to Sambo. I'm getting ahead of myself because I'm 23 years old and I got to go back to when I was 20. Okay. When I'm 20, when I'm 18, 19, 20 at home, Ronald and I would take, I'd take my guitar and we would Piddle with writing a song, trying to write song, we'd sing, and we went to Sambo and rec and recorded a couple of songs. Well, I, you know, we think these are pretty good songs. So I get on Greyhound bus. I'm 20 years old at the time, and I go down to, to Nashville and start walking down 16th Avenue South, 17th Avenue South, to all these publishing and record companies. Back then, they would listen to you. That's probably how they had to find people. Well, I guess. Yeah. I, yeah. Well, there was this one. This, I think this, it's, I, I honestly believe it's like, here's why they listen to you. They got, this kid has the balls to come down here with this music <laughs> well, that he recorded and he's knocking on all these doors. And if, watch this, he just came from three doors down and guess what? He went to two doors down. Now he's here. Watch this. He's going to go to the next three houses. That's why they listen to well, you. And nobody and, else and, probably did that. And he but comes got, across like he's the biggest star in the nation. <laughs> in the room like, hey, I got this record. I'm interested in you guys as a publishing company. Tell me how much you're going to pay me on my contract. I love it, man. I go into this place called Tree Publishing. Tree Publishing was, and may still be, one of the largest publishing companies in the world. The manager, Nashville manager, was a guy named Tom Hartman. Well, I go up to the desk, and this, all the girls, all the women down there are pretty in these offices, you know. At least they were then. She said, what can I, can I help you? And I said, yes, ma'am, you can. <laughs> and uh, I tell her I'd like, got some songs I'd like for somebody to listen to. She calls back, and Tom Hartman comes out, and he is a big guy. I mean, he's just a big guy. And he's got a cigar that's about two inches in diameter, and he's smoking this big cigar. And he says, what you got, boy? So I... Tell him so we go back to his room and big old reel to reels back. So he so turns. So you got reel to reels you're carrying with you. Yes, to, that's yes. awesome. Reel to reel. I love it. And so he turns around. He puts this reel to reel on his tape player, and uh, he listens and listens for about half of it. And he goes to the next song, listens for about half. Finally, he turns it off and he turns around. And he says, "Do you want to hear what I usually say, or do you want the truth?" And I said, well, I want the truth. He said, well, they sound like shit. <laughs> so so, so uh, I realized that later in life that they really did. <laughs> they were bad songs. Just not good so you, you guys recorded a song that I found on YouTube with the Ultratones. Sister of a girl. Yes. I was. Yeah, that was the first record that it ever. Ronald played. Uh, he was the backup singer and with Sonny Evans. Uh, I wrote that song with Terry Ward, the lead guitar player. A couple years ago, I was just looking online, hadn't 
no idea it was on there. So listening to you talk, this was somewhere 61 to 63, somewhere in that range. Mm-hmm. On and YouTube, they have it as being released on Gary Records, Gary Records in, in 1966. Well, that's wrong. It was it was released in 1962. It got a little local airplay, not a whole lot, but some. Let's listen to it. That song was recorded by the Ultratones in 1962 and released in 1962. It was recorded in a garage band in St. Matthews. And Joe, did y'all release that on Spotify or iTunes? Or? Oh, no, there was no such oh, thing. Okay, my, my bad. <laughs> you just went to radio stations and asked if they would play it. Man, I lo- I honestly, Brad played that for me before you got here, and I love recordings like that. They're so warm in the tone, and I'm... Love it. Well, online, I just happened to see it by accident one day under a doo-wop station. And somebody had put on a, a comment, great song. <laughs> Don't know who it was. It wasn't, wasn't me or Ron. Hopefully you <laughs> like that comment. It has 2,000 <laughs> views. Does it really? Yeah. yeah. Did you all record that in some type of big studio? No, or? it was it was a garage. It was a garage studio. It had a glass control room. And, okay. and all the instruments were out in the recording area, and it had microphones. It was it was built as a studio in the garage, but it was it was it was a nice studio. There were no second takes and cutting stuff in. It was you recorded as a as a band. Yes, you played it, you sang it, you did it all, and that was it. And if you if you didn't like the way it sounded, you did do, it again. Do it from top to bottom. Uh, we didn't do it in one take. I, I mean, heard that. As a matter of fact, I hear that's how you do practices, and that's how you do practices <laughs> from <laughs> the top. Yeah, we <laughs> play the whole thing. If you're going to do it, do it right. <laughs> but but you know what? There's there's value in that. There's value in running it and running it and running it and running it. So you know it back and forward. When you can do that as a group and take it in a studio and you know what you want to hear and you can play it and and uh, hear it the first time or take a couple takes to hear exactly what you want, people these days don't do that. People cut and paste and they do I mean, I'm, oh, I'm no. guilty of it. it. It becomes so convenient you get lazy instead of making sure the product is... This is what we sound like all the time. And I think that's why a lot of people get disappointed when they go and watch somebody live is they're not getting what the true product is when they actually hear it for the first time on the radio or anything else. Part of what I love when I hear a recording like that is the fact that I know that that was done in one take and it was all you guys on the same page, on the same take, on the same time for that three or four minutes. And, And that's what you got. The Ultratones was a good band. The drummer on that song was a guy named Jimmy Roof. Jimmy Roof joined our band. uh, It was kind of serendipitous. We were playing at Lee's Lounge, and the drummer didn't show up. 
there had been a little friction with him before. And so we're playing, and we don't have a drummer. Jimmy Roof was in the audience uh, sitting at a bar at the table drinking, and he came up and he said, I'm, uh, he said, I, I'm a drummer. I got some drums on. Can I bring them and sit in with you? And we're sure, you know. So he, he was a, a student at Bellarmine at the time. So he was right around the corner. Right around the corner. Perfect. And he went and got his drums and came and played. And he played with us uh, for, a long, for a long time. We were playing on Saturday nights at the YMCA after we left our gig with uh, Lee's Lounge was over. And we started playing at the YMCA. And the YMCA had these dances basically for soldiers who would come in for the weekend for a place from the go, whenever a lot of girls that would come. And I uh, was reading an article in my file cabinet today that when we started playing there, attendance rose up by 300 people for the weekends on nice. that Saturday. Yeah, it was nice. So y'all had a good following. I guess we did because it, it said it, it increased 300. Well, we, we were playing one night, and Jimmy kept telling me, he said, man, he said, my arm is killing me. And so we're playing the songs, you know, and the next day he goes to the doctor and he's got a broken arm. He play, <laughs> played that night with a broken arm. And what had happened on the way to the gig, he's driving and he's got his arm sticking out. Well, I think it was Sonny Evans was driving in another car and accidentally sideswiped, hit his arm and broke his arm. And I don't know how bad a break it was, but he but, played he played the drums all night. He got hit by a car. <laughs> Did he mention that he got hit by a car when you were at the gig? Yeah, he yeah. <laughs> told us about it. But uh, yeah, it broke his arm. And uh, oh. now that's dedication. Yeah, well, the show must go on. That's, that's why you never uh, after that other drummer and all that friction. That was, of course, this guy's the guy. Oh yeah, <laughs> I mean, but you know, gracious. you guys were also a lot tougher back then. You know, <laughs> yeah, they built you up. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, you say that, but you know, we didn't grow up with air conditioning, and we didn't have air conditioning in the school, and uh, we took salt tablets, started during smoking football cigarettes. practice instead of water. <laughs> start smoking cigarettes at seven. Well, it's because it was doctor prescribed. <laughs> you gotta this will help your lungs. This will help you cold. Uh-huh. Well, I gotta go back to Dallas now. So you're in the military. Nineteen sixty three, November. 22nd. No, this is nineteen sixty seven. Okay. And I'm in living in Dallas. I run around with these two guys. One of them, Max, had an uncle who was in Texas terms called a loan broker. Up north, I don't know what whether that loan broker would be called by another name. My boss. Like no, <laughs> like you know, I had big teeth like on Jones. You know, I, I don't know. I don't know. I'm just saying. Can I say probably? I'll just say it for you. Yeah. Probably. Uh, well, I'm not going to mention any names anyway. But, <laughs> but anyway, statue of limitations. But, but anyway, he's the guy that knew the guy that owned the studio. Okay, July Fourth holidays. He wanted to take. Me and Max and Bob and his business partner and himself to Las Vegas. So we fly out to Las Vegas. He pays all the bills. All we had to take was money to gamble with. So we're staying at the Stardust Hotel, which was known to be mob-owned. And at the Stardust, there was a show called Lolito. And Lolito 
was a variety show. I mean, they had jugglers, they had acrobats, they had topless dancers, they had the full big hair things like the, they do in, at the Jubilee Valleys. Max's uncle asked me, he said, hey, you want to go, go see a show? And I said, yeah. I said, yeah, I'll go see that. So we get to the, day, the, the door, and he told, Max's uncle told uh, the guy, the maitre d', whatever you call him, that he wants up front. And the guy said, well, I'm sorry, sir, we don't have any any seats down, any tables down there, they're all taken. And he says, do you know who this is? This is Andy Weston. And the guy says, oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Weston, I did not recognize you. <laughs> and he handed, he gave him a handshake that had some money in the hand, okay? I swear to goodness, the guy takes us down to right center stage, right in front of the stage, moves the other tables out of the way, sets a table there with two chairs, and we sit there with our hands on the on the stage watching the show. And <laughs> Did you say, I didn't even know who I was? <laughs> <laughs> but it's a, it's a memory. <laughs> I tell you what, that's funny, because when you said, uh, this is, I'm assuming this is the uh, late 60s, right? 67. Mob, Mob Run uh, Hotel in, in Vegas, I thought... Yeah, all of Vegas was my run. It was, <laughs> it was, and, I, and I'm gonna—I've said this to a lot of people, and uh, I've had older people who are my age who've been there. And say, Las Vegas was a lot better when, when the mob ran it than it is now. Oh yeah, yeah. It, is it, it, it had more class. Tourist? Yeah, it had more class. You wore a sports coat. The women dressed up in the in the casinos. It just had a different atmosphere. Well, from the old pictures, I see people dressed like that to go to the farmers market. <laughs> yeah, they did wear they did wear suits to go to the baseball game at the Redbirds Stadium until '82. When I was at Western, you wore a sports coat and a tie to go to a football game. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense to me, oh, man. It, come on, it had class. Yeah, you can keep that. Give me a dag on Uville uh, hoodie. Call it a day. And the girls look good. Yeah, they still look good. So <laughs> where, where, does your, where does your next band come into the picture? Do you fly right. solo the rest of the time? Well, I, I did a lot of solo, but uh, let's go. When well, I, wait, 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 so you went from ultratones into basic, and then once you're in Texas with these guys, what did you have a uh, band name? or what, what No, was... no, this, this we were just friends. We weren't, The only time I did any singing was at parties. Okay. But when I moved back from Texas, Ray Fultz, was starting to get okay. right down the road here. Right down yes. the road. David Reed's grandmother, Miss Marlowe, she took a liking to my singing. I was singing at these local jamborees. She told Ray Fultz about me, and Ray was wanting to start a recording studio. He bought a four little four-track reel-to-reel tape recorder and called me, and wanted to know if I wanted to come up and kind of experiment with this recording. And so we, we did some recording with it. So you were one of his first people in there, or were you the first person in there to mess with it? If I wasn't the first, I don't know who the first was. Holy crap. Hold um, up. This is important, because we talked about not being the first recording studio up on Top Hill and all this. And mm -hmm. I didn't know you were the first 
one of, if not the first, one of the first people in there before it was oh, what yeah. it, it ended up being Fultz Studios. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't even a studio. He had a four-track sitting on, on a table. That's insane. So he was learning to engineer with you. He was learning to, he's, yes. He's doing what you're doing. Exactly. He's figuring, exactly. He, was, he was fit. So as, as big as he became, you were, you were at the starting point with him. And, and, yes, and at, the, at the ground floor. That's yeah. crazy. And we, I would take stuff up that I'd written. That's crazy. And 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 tape them. And some songs were were cover songs, you know. Who cares? Uh, just to play, just so, so well, that he could work on it. I was going to say that was probably more for him than it was for you at that point when you did something like that, right? I think I think that was the whole thing. Yeah, it kept growing and growing. Ray Fultz's studio got to the point that it was as as nice as anything in Nashville. Oh yeah, it was a, a really nice. Studio. Did he do all the engineering himself? In the very first, he started to, but then very quickly, he hired an engineer. He loved it, loved music, but kind of realized, I I want to do this, but I may be in over my head. If- when, it, when it got to the point that he had the control room and he had the board, uh, he had an engineer. He had hired an engineer to do it. As an outsider, as, a, as an artist that's coming in to record and, and, and do those things, what was it to watch that process of somebody else expand their horizons into something like that? Was it? Did you feel like I'm kind of an intricate piece to the puzzle that's going on here, or did you just feel like, how cool is this that he's doing this and I get to be a part of it? That, that didn't even enter my mind. Really? You know, no, I was just, I was just singing, and you know, we were having a good time recording, and and he was having a good time with it. Yeah, I tell you, one of the people that recorded at Fools was Tiny Tim. Yeah, you remember Tiny Tim? Oh, through that two lips. He recorded at Fools. There were several name acts, big that, national acts, that, came up here from Nashville, recorded yeah. there. Uh, Sawyer Brown. I believe, recorded I, up here at one point. I don't know. Somebody, I, I believe Sawyer Brown recorded up here at one point, but we'll see. But but Ray had a had a good thing going there. Sometimes uh, Sharon and I, we married and we'd go up just to visit with Ray. And we would uh, sit there and after a while, Ray would turn to Helen, his wife, and he'd say, uh, Babe, you think we ought to go to bed so these people can go home? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to use that. <laughs> All you got to do is tell me to go home, man. You don't have to do that. Just say, dude, you got to go now. Sorry, Brad. Well, getting back to Miss Marlowe. Miss Marlowe, or Mrs. Marlowe, she got me an audition at WHAS Television, Hayloft Hoedown. Wait, what was it? Hayloft Hoedown. Hayloft Hoedown. Okay. Have you ever heard of it? No, no but right. I love it. Hayloft Hoedown was a country music show. It was on WHAS on Friday nights, and it ran for, oh, maybe 20 years. I auditioned for them and became a, a, a regular guest on there about once a month, and I would sing on there. Miss Marlowe also got me a an audition for an Alka-Seltzer commercial, but I had to go to New York City, and I was playing. At, so where, where did her contacts come from? How did she get? She just called people. She just talked to people. She had your confidence. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> she did. And so I was playing at uh, the Town Tires Lounge in Bowling Green. This is in 1968. I had to take a couple nights off from 
Town Tires, where I play, I played there for several months. And uh, Buell Cox and I flew to New York to audition for this uh, commercial. He was an attorney. was going to go and see if everything was done right. Well, I didn't get it. So it was immaterial. But it was an experience. It sounds like you're very well traveled at this it, point it, in your life. Yeah, I was 24 at the time. That 68, 24 yeah. years old, mm -hmm. been to Texas, been to New York, been to Vegas, been, you've, uh, you've had a lot been of... Been to Canada up there. I mean, okay. it's insane. After we didn't get the uh, Alka-Seltzer commercial, that night we went bar hopping. We went to the Latin Quarter, which was a world-known nightclub, and the Copacabana. Uh, hmm. The Copacabana was... Very well known. Never heard of it. Barry Manilow <laughs> even has a, had a copa. Well, we're sitting at a table, and this woman comes around, and she's fortune teller, palm reader. And she looks at me, and she says, uh, can I read your palm? And I said, I've had a few drinks. I said, yeah. She gets my hand, you know, and she's reading it, and she's on my lifeline and everything. And she says, you're a musician. Well, that just impressed pressed the hell out of me. When she's gone, I said, man, she's she pretty good. And Buell says, Andy, look at your fingertips. They're calloused. <laughs> and then she said, and then what really impressed him, she said, you should have finished track season your senior year of high school. <laughs> no, but, but she, did, she did say, are you going to be in town tomorrow? Well, we were flying out the next day. And I said, oh, I've got a flounce. She said, well, can you cancel that? She says, if you're a, a musician, I could get you an audition here at Tacoba. Whoa. And, and I swear, you know, and maybe it was just a lack of confidence there because, I mean, this is the big time. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, you know, we got to fly back because I got to get back to my little little gig down in Bowling Green. Hey, you got to make that money. You, know? <laughs> you got to make that. Uh, that. That's a memory, too. You know what? Um, <laughs> the one thing I've learned about this this little even the little bit of industry that i've ever been involved in is the promises that aren't kept so that audition that you could have had that next day no the likelihood that that was real is is so small compared to the the what it really was because it seems like everybody talks this big game until it's the time to back it up. and The one that I do think was a possibility was Jack Palance. Yeah. Because he had a reputation because for, he was Jack for, helping, yeah. for helping people who are trying to work their way up. It's 2020 yeah. and you say his name and people are going to remember him. Oh, and that's yeah. why, because if you have a name like that, of course, you may be able to do a little bit more and have more influence. But it's always those people behind the scene that tell you they've got the uh, the ends and uh, that, that you just... Yeah, I doubt it. Like a yeah. like a yeah. palm reader. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's hilarious. How old are you at this point? Twenty four, right man. Twenty four. Twenty four years mm -hmm. old. At that same time, along with Miss Marlowe, was a disc jockey at WINN Radio named Frank King. And Frank King had seen me at these shows. He approached me, wanting to, you know, see if we couldn't work together on some things. So he took me down to Nashville to meet some people he knew down there. And one of them was a guy named Carl Ballou. 
Carl Blue was a songwriter. If you look him up, he hit after hit by other he'd written for other people. We visited with him for a little while and got to he got to call me Andy. I got to call him Carl. You know mm-hmm. how that is. Well, I go back and uh, and at that time I'm still playing at uh, Town Tires in Bowling Green. Frank gets a hold of me. And he says, look, can you meet me at Ray Fultz's to record demos? So I can't even remember what the songs were now. But we went to Ray's and with a guitar and a couple other musicians that Frank got to play. And we, and we recorded a couple songs. And we went to Nashville, went to RCA Records. The A&R man at that time was Chad Atkins. No kidding. So we just sit there, and Chet comes out, and he greets Frank by his first name. You know, hey, Frank, come on back. So we go back, and Chet Atkins puts that reel-to-reel on again, and he play, He gets halfway through the first song and stops, takes it off, drops it on the table and says, we got one Elvis, we don't need another. He got up and walked out of the room. Hmm. So that was that. Was that something— that you developed by being an Elvis fan, or did you just happen to sound like Elvis, or a little of both, or what? I th- maybe a little of both. I, I think that, yeah, I was an Elvis fan, but the tone was the same. I could sing. Today, the, the tone is still the same quite a bit, but I have to go into the Elvis thing, you know, to to get that. Back then, I just opened my mouth, and that's what came out, because I wasn't trying to sound like him. That reminds me of a, a, a little bit of a sidebar story of mine. It's funny, because Kim yesterday, even yesterday, mentioned something about me liking Dave Matthews. <laughs> and I, I was like, Kim, I haven't listened to him so long. But what that reminds me of is I remember a time when I was playing with Voodoo Symphony in Lexington. This was the, the band that was made up just like Dave Matthews without the— Violin player, we had an extra guitar player. We had two acoustic guitars, but we had the sax, we had the keys, we had everything. I had, for some reason, recorded a night that I did with Voodoo Symphony, and I don't remember if it was just a, 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 it was tape players, but I don't remember if it was no just tape player. I don't remember if I had something that went to the board that I could record it on, but I got to listen to myself at like 18 years old, 19 years old, playing with Voodoo Symphony. And what I heard was a kid trying to sound exactly like Dave Matthews. I didn't hear myself. Mm-hmm. I, every song that I sang had that exact tone, exact sound. It sounded like Dave Matthews singing a bunch of different cover songs. That was the most important recording I ever heard of myself because I went, oh, my gosh, this sounds like dog crap, number one. It sounded terrible. <laughs> There's one guy that sounds like that, and he doesn't do it on purpose, because if you listen to him, it's kind of like, eh, <laughs> especially now. But, you know, it, 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 forging your own identity, especially at an early age, with, with myself hearing it and the, the ability to hear it, was wildly important to me. I don't know if when you recorded that stuff and listened back to it, if there was a point where you were like, do I sound like this, or am I trying to have a sound? Because I, I'll tell you right now, I was never aware that I was doing that yeah. until I heard that. I was aware that there was a Presley sound. Yeah. But it wasn't something I was consciously trying to do. Uh, in fact, I tried not to 
because I kept getting feedback. You got to develop your own style. You have to develop your own style. People in Nashville saying you got to develop your own style. I didn't know what the hell they were talking about. What do you mean, develop my own style? I just sang a song. Was that the only guy that ever came out and told you you sound too much like Elvis? Oh, no. Several people told me that. So how many years of this went on before you wrote the song? Too much like Elvis? Yeah. Too much like Elvis just built up from hearing it so much. That had to have been frustrating. Oh, it was. Well, not only that, I started doing the, uh, and they go back to Miss Marlowe. Miss Marlowe got me a gig singing on Lincoln Jamboree. She was a hell of a promoter. She really honestly was. I went down and I was singing. I was doing myself. Well, Joe Ray Sprouse always had an Elvis act. And it uh, was Eddie Miles. That's Lincoln Jamboree in Hodgenville, In Hodgenville. Right? Eddie Miles joined the Air Force. So Dad was my manager at this time. Joe Ray went to Dad and asked him if I would do an Elvis act because I sounded a little bit like him, okay? That had to be a tough decision for you. I didn't want to do it. Dad said, well, do it one time. I said, I'll do it one time. It really went over good. Which is the worst thing that could happen oh, for you. Well, Sharon. So she, this is this is straight up 100% Elvis impersonation. Yes. Act. Scarf and jumpsuit. Sharon made from scratch a white jumpsuit with gold inlay, a, a white cape with a gold cape to to do this show. How come that's not in the basement? <laughs> it is in the basement in a cedar chest. No, we need to put that a mannequin. <laughs> we need it on display. We need a mannequin with a rotation, little rotating stand. Well, <laughs> I do this show, and, and I swear, I young ladies can act crazy. Yes, they can. Yes. There were a couple of women that even tried to get into the dressing room with me. And you can ask Sharon, I was depressed on the way home because I wanted people to appreciate my music. But what they were seeing was an Im image of Elvis Presley. Every time Joe Ray, the only booking he would give me from then on was Elvis Act. Oh, you're probably making him all kinds of money. It, it got to the point that no matter where somebody wanted to book me, they wanted to book the Elvis Act. I just, I said, no, I, I finally asked it, Dad, I'm, I'm not doing that anymore because it really did. Uh, and I'm not, I, I'm not being melodramatic. It, it made me depressed to do the Elvis show. Well, probably for two reasons, what you're talking about with <clears throat> wanting to be seen as Andy Weston and your own artist. But the other thing, too, if you're only getting booked for Elvis shows, you're probably wondering if you did something to... To damage your own. Well, it had to, and, and, I'll, and I'll, I'll give you an example. When we went to Nashville to cut, the, I was looking for a, a, a producer, and there was a Conbrio Records. Conbrio Records was owned by Jeff Walker, who was the son of Bill Walker, who is a Hall of Fame producer. And he's the arranger for, uh, he does the arrangement for the Grand Ole Opry specials and all that kind of stuff. And he's the one that was the producer of the records I had. But Jeff Walker was listening to my tape and everything, and he, he liked it. But he saw, 
I made the mistake when I put, I had a portfolio of photographs, and one of the photographs was in the jumpsuit. As soon as he saw that, he closed it up. Hmm. And it was almost like the conversation was over. Did the Elvis impersonation time, did it just play itself out, or no, did I just you make a decision to quit? Okay. I just quit doing it. But that came back in the 80s. This, we're still down in the, now, well, that was in the 70s. I'm getting kind of ahead of myself. Let's go back to Frank King. Frank, at the time, at this time that Frank has uh, taken me to Nashville and all this, Conway Twitty and Loretta Lynn had started doing duets. So Frank told me, and I was doing rock and roll. Frank told me, he said, Andy said, what you need to do is get you a, a woman singer and you all do duets like Conway and Loretta. And I said, Frank, I said, I'm not. And Frank was a country music. WINN was a country station. And he was a country music DJ. And I said, I, I, don't, I just don't care for that. You know, I don't, I don't want to do that. And he said, well, just listen to her. Uh, he said, he brought me these records, uh, Sharon's records, played them. And I said, well, it's all right. I said, but I can't see us singing together. <laughs> he said, why don't you just meet her? So... She was going to be doing some demo cuts at Fultz Studios. I go up there, and I meet her. And I was rather cocky in those days. What? Okay. No. Yeah, yeah, it, uh, that hadn't come across at all. Yeah. Bro? And uh, <laughs> and she didn't take a liking to me. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, no. Oh. Well, that's something that happened. studio spill, man. Oh. Uh. No harm done. No harm. Miss Marlowe was instrumental in another... Uh, Did you ever go out on any dates with Miss Marlowe? Because <laughs> <No. laughs> you're awfully fond of her. Well, I'm she, fond of her at this point. I feel like I know her. She would have made a good professional manager. Sounds like she yeah. Sounds like she would have. She would have. Uh, she also introduced me to uh, a guy. Uh, I can't remember what Mr. Hamilton's uh, first name was. Mr. But he put together the Miss Kentucky pageants. At that time, he, he headed up the shows on uh, downtown. I think it was a Brown Theater. Could be wrong about that. I was the featured singer for the 1969 Miss Kentucky pageant. And, <laughs> and sang. You, uh, you're, you, the, you're the. You've had a lot of like uh, random experiences. And what year yeah. was that? This was 1969. You know what, Neil? He probably went up and said, hey, I hear you got this Kentucky pageant I'm coming interested up. I, in I think it. you ought to have me sing. <laughs> I'm interested, in, I'm interested in this Kentucky pageant. Yeah, Miss Miss America is dancing, and I, but, but I they, got a picture of her dancing with me singing to her. But, so. What they did was said, Andy, you cannot be a contestant in this pageant. <laughs> no. Well, then I can sing. Okay. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, Miss Miss America's dancing, and I'm singing to her, and I got a picture of it done. Yeah, so. She looked good. <laughs> okay, so let's get let's get out. All right, of so now let me ask you. What? We got to go back in, in, until the first uh, spill story of of the podcast. Hey guys, so, I got to tell you something though. We like men in his twenties for ninety minutes now. <laughs> <laughs> we, can we like get to twenty eight? We at least 20. need to finish. 
the story where he meets his wife. Oh, okay. This is oh, the yeah. most important story of the night. That is where we she, were. She did not like him at first meeting. That's no, what made me didn't. laugh so hard. It made me spill all my drinks. I can't. I can't really. I can't really say exactly <laughs> what I said to her when I first met her because it was inappropriate. It, it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I asked her out seven times before she'd go out with me. Well, how, how old was she when you met her at Ray's uh, She was 18, I think. I was 25. She was 19. I was uh, I was closer to 26 than I was 25 hey, when we I, got married. You finally wore her down enough to, to let you actually take her out, and then you charmed her into and to eventually uh, Yeah, well, I'm not going to get into much of that because Sharon's going to be doing an interview with you all about her music, and uh, a lot of that intertwines there. Uh, So uh, not that I had anything to do with her music, but any of the story that I would tell. All right, just answer this question. You wore her down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And then after we got married, I continued to sing. uh, He just kept telling her how great he was. (laughs) 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 No, I don't let my actions speak louder than my words. I don't know. Okay. Um, During that time, I appeared with uh, Waylon Jennings. Well, wait. Oh. Did you guys end up? Doing duets? No. So no. you you went, you stuck with the I'm not doing this duet thing, which no. which thankfully you did that because that was not wildly popular in the 70s and early 80s at no. all. Uh, <laughs> especially in country music. I mean, her, her music, people did not want her uh, having much, much to do with me. Was it because so, you were more rock and roll based or because well, you had the stigma of this guy sounds like Elvis? Oh, she was doing a show in Joliet, Illinois. I had a few words with a guy there. We weren't dating. We were dating, but we weren't going together. So while she was she was up in the Chicago area for a three-week gig, and she went out with this guy. Well... When she was doing this show in Joliet, I went up to Joliet to see it. Well, this guy was there, and I showed my ass. And so uh, her manager and her record company, they they didn't want her to have anything to do with me. Then I don't blame them. I think you said, and then I played with Waylon Jennings. Yeah, I Waylon was doing a show in... Uh, Valley Station. And so I was one of the warm-up acts for really? Waylon. Where at? at uh, it was at Valley High School. No kidding. Are you serious? Yeah. Well, I mean, they pull up in parking lots and play with these, yeah. uh, you know. So was he a big star at this point? Well, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and he, was this in, the like, the high school gym? I guess it was. I, I mean, I don't, I can't remember the exact setting of it. It might have been. I don't think Valley had an auditorium. No, they, they, they definitely didn't have yeah. that big venue. They so Waylon was like, he, he's always been like outlaw country, right? Yeah. Uh, well, he had just gotten back from uh, Vegas, and Jesse Coulter and the band was with him, and he was so hoarse he couldn't hardly, he couldn't sing. And so the band and Jesse Coulter filled out the night. The promoter was not going to pay him. He told, or his front man or his lead guitar player told the audience that they weren't going to pay Willing because he couldn't sing, but they had put on a show. And people started getting upset, and he got his money. <laughs> I, uh, 
During that period of time, I appeared with uh, Dale Reeves. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. If you've heard the song, Who is the Girl Wearing Nothing But a Smile and a Towel on the Picture on the Billboard in the Field Near the Big Old Highway. That is the longest title in the <laughs> history of titles. Holy crap. And, uh, <laughs> I think Fiona Apple named her album that a few years later. Holy crap. That's and, insane. Uh, Another one that I <laughs> appeared before they did was uh, Hank Snow. If you don't know him, he had a song called Summertime in the Evening on the Lake in the Grass on the, <laughs> on the Boat Watching the Sunset in the Evening. Hank Snow, <laughs> Hank Snow was a big country music star, and he was also, his manager was Colonel Tom Parker. That's before Elvis. Yeah. Okay. And uh, Hank Snow had several, several hits. He uh, he was big with the Grand Ole Opry's beginnings. Another one was Little Jimmy Dickens. No. Yeah. But Waylon's probably the, the biggest one that you all would remember. Yeah. All right, I got a question and that you may be able to... It seems like, and I, this is just from talking to you and Larry Bond and Ron, that in the... And even probably before your time, the 50s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, you could l really make a living in music by doing, I mean, you're going to have to travel and you're going to have to play yeah. a ton of shows and you're going to have to do those things. But it seemed like there was a lot more ways to make a living if you were an artist of some sort like that compared to now it seems like you're going to have to have a, um, a job and other things if you're if you're not a gigantically successful musician, you could be a successful local musician and make a decent living as a musician, it seems like. Well, that's because back in those days, there were there were so many places to play. Yeah. I mean, the Ultratones stayed pretty busy. I mean, we stayed busy whenever we wanted to play. Yeah. But then along came DJs, and uh, they they put live music out of, out of business. Yeah. Well, I think they... Unfortunately, I still do that, and it's generally with an iPod. I mean, you don't have to do much of anything to put together a playlist. But I think there was more more toleration for live music than there is these days. I think that especially with the younger crowd, is is it's hard to, if you're not perfect, people don't want to listen. If you aren't, I, it feels like that anyway. But I do think I've talked about this quite a bit that the younger generation coming up is just different, man. They they love the the live instruments and live music, and that that gives me a lot of excitement too. Mm -hmm. Sharon and I got married, and I continued to sing uh, at some of the local music shows. But then I went to work for International Harvester, mm -hmm. and got out of the business. And she got out of the business completely. Yes. Both of you. Yes. Once you started International Harvester, did any live music or any music at all just kind of fade into the background? No. I, Not away, but into the deep background? I, I wrote a little bit. But then in 1977 and 78, that's when we cut up at Bray Fultz's. We cut uh, It's Only Make Believe with the Times Band. And the world's eighth wonder, and the world's eighth wonder is a song I wrote. We needed a song to go on the flip side of its only make believe. We didn't have anything, and I, I was sitting in the bathtub, and I came up with a song, the world's eighth wonder. 
You, well, that's you, weird. You're going <laughs> you're going to think I'm the world's eighth wonder. That's pretty weird, man. Okay. Oh, okay. What were you looking at? And that's that is that's that's where the song was written. It was in the bathtub. Do you have a recording of that? Well, yeah. A digital recording? Yeah, and uh it's also we also did it uh with the uh Clavis Isley band. We did a cut of it. All right. And it's on the uh Clavis Isley CD. Well, we got to put World's Eighth Wonder, at least a clip right here. Well, I'm gonna get you sooner or later. I'm gonna show you, babe, that I'm a winner. I'm gonna make you fall in love with me. You're gonna scream. You're gonna shout. You're gonna pull handfuls of hair out. You're gonna wiggle and you're gonna squeal. But baby, I show you, girl, that I'm for real now. I kiss your lips, your toes curl under You're gonna think that I'm the world's a wonder I'm gonna make you fall in love with me I also wrote a song in the bathtub um, It was covered by uh, a, a band back in the day Blink-182, it's called All the Small Things uh, <laughs> Way different than your song that's uh, all I could think well, of. Well, all there. I know is the <laughs> one of the lines is you're going to scream, you're going to shout, you're going to pull hair, I mean, handfuls of hair out there. that in the bathtub. How dare you? <laughs> well, you know, I'm just telling you how it was. Appeared in a, a movie that I've never seen. Uh, it's called Bless Them All. Bless Them All? Bless Them All with Eddie Albert and Jill St. John. And you've never seen it? How have you never seen it, I man? Don't, I don't even know if it was ever released. We're, I, I had, we're going to find it. I had a, a a little part. Did you talk? Was it a talking part? I had, all I said was, back up, bozo. And I, I was a New York cop with my accent. <laughs> back up, bozo. Back up, bozo. Uh, <laughs> Tell you what, man, you've had a, a, a bit of a charmed life when it comes to be, being somewhat of an artist, man. You've had a lot of touches with with some cool, cool people, and a lot of nobody can tell these stories. Waylon Jennings playing with it's really cool. Being in a movie, even if you don't know if it came out, yeah, but you I, had a speaking I've, line. I've tried to find it, and I couldn't. Uh, the scenes that we shot was over at uh, in a. A hotel over in Indiana, an old hotel they were remodeling. It was supposed to be in New York, and it was a beautiful hotel. I just can't remember. Might have been up there at uh, where the casino is. Mm. Okay, so didn't do anything while I was at Har Harvester until Elvis died. And then we, we started getting into the music again. I was writing music. Dad begin managing. We went to Nashville and had those uh, two, two of the songs that I sent you, the early morning love, three in the morning, uh, don't put those chains around me, and I believe in someone. And this is the Times Band? No, no, these were Nashville musicians. It was recorded at Columbia Studios. Okay. They were, they were national, hit, uh, national releases, got airplay across the country, but not enough to get charted. Did you guys market those the same way by going to radio stations, or how did you market those? Well, we had promoters that were hired to do it. I did get about three contacts from a guy named George Cabral in Hawaii. 
He was a disc jockey over there, loved the records, and kept trying to get us booked over in Hawaii where we could play over there. But we couldn't afford it, couldn't charge enough money to pay the band, pay anything to do it. So we couldn't do it. And um, toured around. The next big mistake I made was Bill Walker said, Andy, you need, I was working at Harvester at the time. And he said, you need to get out on the road and promote these records. So not being like George Strait, who stayed a foreman on a ranch until he was making so much money with the music that he could leave his foreman's job on the ranch, I quit my job with two preteen daughters Oh wow! and tried to make it in music and out on the road. And played in uh, uh, Charleston, South Carolina, and uh, Sanford, North Carolina, and Bloomington, Indiana, Tell City, Indiana, and Crofton, Nebraska, but couldn't demand enough to pay anything. So you're playing your music at this point in your play. Well, you? we were playing a couple of my songs, but we were playing covers because I, I mean I couldn't, we couldn't fill out a night in right. a club just doing my stuff. Let's listen to one of these songs. Well, I, I think that Early Morning Love was a good one. The writer of that song is a guy named Chester Lester, and he had several... Chester Lester. Yeah, he's a good songwriter. I felt her fingers She gently moved them up my spine On my neck, a heart in rhythm with mine. I slowly turn to see a thing of beauty. Chester Lester had a number one hit with a guy named Razzie Bailey, and the title of that song was She Left Love All Over Me, and it was a good song. Yeah, I went to, down to Chester's house, Sharon and I did a couple times in Nashville, working on writing songs, and he was an accomplished songwriter. He was he was helping me as, you know, as much as he could. I Wish I'd have been able to pick up a little bit more from him. I think that when it comes to writing, that I think my lyrics are better than my melodies. I think my melodies are the weak, weakest part for me. Do you ever think, because you got a great voice. Well, I, thank lo you. I love your voice. You. Do you ever think 
what happens if Elvis never comes around? And, and, and not because you're going to be what Elvis was, but anybody that has a voice that has that tone or that, that type of uh, vibrato, you automatically get likened to that. You can't. You almost can't become your own thing because if you have that tone or that vibrato, you're, you're linked into this it's, thing. It, 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 it's just a, a natural there. Uh, in, the, in that song, Too Much Like Elvis, in one, one part of it, I say, uh, you know, that Nashville says, too bad you don't sound more like Haggard, Pride, or Jones. Because if you listen to the, the radio and some of these uh, more the classic country and up until the cookie-cutter country of today, they did, a lot of them sound like Haggard, Pride, or Jones. That's it. And then they they sounded like Lefty Frizzell, you yeah. know, so. Yeah. Uh, when, when did you write Too Much Like Elvis? Where were you mentally or emotionally at that point? Okay, in 1994, I, I started writing a book called The Clavis Isley Story. It's a novel. The Clavis Isley Story is about a rock and roll singer who sounds too much like Elvis. And it haunts him through his whole career. And this is a novel. You wrote a complete book. Yes, a novel. Uh, It's the first one. I've written three so far. I'm working on my fourth. (laughs) He's done a little bit of everything. The the, uh, the the full play will be out in on stages coming to Actors Theater. This, it, this, well, uh, you you can somewhere. buy uh, Clevis Isley uh, story of vengeance and uh, the Cover Bridge murder on Amazon paperback or ebook. There you go. There you go. A little awesome. advertisement there. Heck yeah. But uh, I wrote. Hey, you're the first author I've ever met. <laughs> I don't know what to say about that, Neil. <laughs> No, I don't either. I think it's pretty awesome. Uh, But I I wrote that song basically along with that that book. Was it a good release and very cathartic for you to be able to write that song as Clavis Isley instead of Andy Weston? But do you think it, because you got to be this character that was a version of who you are, you got to make it a little bit bigger and, and... uh, exaggerate it and create that gigantic what that song becomes because it's not even really exaggerated but at least you get to do it through somebody else's lane because no. sometimes it, it's too personal no in 1983 i was on the road with the band we were in crofton nebraska the vehicle that we used to pull our trailer broke down and it took all the money we made at the club to pay to get it fixed to get us home <laughs> I called Sharon, and I told her, I said, I'm contacting Marv Dennis, who was the agent, booking agent in Nashville, and tell him not to look for anything else for her again. I said, I quit. And I went home, and I put my guitar under the bed and didn't touch it for 10 years. Oh, wow. So you're, like, broke at that point. Oh, yeah, I was broke. And I was bitter. Was I mean, this was this so? This is after quitting International Harvester. Oh yeah, I mean I'm out the on the road, uh, and I'm not saying broke money wise. I'm saying broke as a person. I, I, yeah. yeah, really, really, and and I was so damn bitter. I would not listen to the radio. I wouldn't watch any of the award shows. I didn't watch anything that had any any type of singing. I mean, I I was an angry person. And that went on for for over 10 years. How did you get through that? Well, maybe it was the the writing of the book, but it took me 13 years to write that book. 
because I just write a paragraph here or whatever, you know. And uh, it ended up over 400 and something pages, and I, and I cut, cut out over 200 pages to, before it was published. In the late 90s, I'm writing these, and Ronald and I and Sharon and Sherry started playing a little family band. And that was the Clavis Isley Band. So that and, butts up against your years of not playing at all? Mm-hmm. So, so then when I first started playing the guitar, you were just getting back into it then? Yes. Did, did him yeah. just starting kind of help re-energize you into maybe pulling that thing from out under the bed? It might have. Uh, I wanted to play it, but it didn't keep my bitterness away. Yeah. I mean, uh, I'd listen to some of this, some of these out there, and I, I hate to say the word now, especially since it's going to be in a podcast. But man, I hated some of those people. Mm-hmm. You know? No, I get it. Uh, and and maybe it goes back to what you talked about earlier about ego. But uh, uh, and I think mine was crushed because I had mm-hmm. a pretty big ego. Yeah, it's crushing when you when you think that you had the ability to do the stuff that. That the people on the radio are doing, or the people that are selling out those shows are doing, you know you have it in you. It's just a matter of why why is lightning not striking me? How it has anybody else? And and that's I think that's the mindset of the way you see it when you're when you're in the midst of that. So I, where I, during this time did you write too much like Elvis? Is that before this, or after, or in that same it, frame? It was in that same period. I wish I uh, I've got it all written down. I've got a catalog at home of the song. I've written about 200 songs, and I've got the copyright dates on them. I wish I had thought about putting that down. To see exactly when you wrote that? See when it was. I, I know it was in the, la- in the la- late 90s. So that was kind of like a therapy piece for you. It might have been. When you were feeling that frustration, when you were absolutely guitar under the bed, I don't want to play music out. What, did the writing process stop for you? Did yes. you? Because I, I find I actually just had this conversation with my daughter today, because she doesn't write, but she's kind of going through some stuff as as all young teenagers on their first year away from home and and everything they know do. And I and I asked, you know, why not take those frustrating moments and put them on paper, well, even if it's not in a song form or anything like that but it just it gets that out of your head it gets that thought process into something different did you ever take those those emotions that and write with those even after the fact because what i what i hear when i hear the the, you sound too much like elvis song is is a lot of that bottled up frustration of being compared even though it's not you quote unquote you know there, there's a ton of that there, and I think that's why that song plays so well is because you're writing from a spot of true frustration and this this angst that 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 you you kind of come from the place. Look, I know I got something here. Why don't y'all not just see it too and not stop? During the mid and late '90s, I, I was writing songs, and I bought a four-track Tascam tape recorder, and I started. Uh, recording these songs because I could take and I could put different instruments down and mm-hmm. and uh, and record them so that that started getting me back into it so that when Ron and Sherry and Sharon and I got together sometimes my memory gets 
scrambled up in here about the times and the dates and things when all this. But it was in the mid and late 90s because I was recording something on, on the cassettes and uh, letting letting people that I worked with listen to them. So let's listen to you never get it. You never get it out of you. No. Let's listen to Too Much Like Elvis. What do you think? Yep. Let's do it. Too much like Elvis. That's the Clavis Asley band. It's the Clavis Asley band, and we played from 1999 to about night about 2003, something like that. And I think the Clavis Asley band. 
I think the top, the name of the band is hilarious because <laughs> they had a band. They had every instrument you need for a band except for a drummer. <laughs> So they used a drum machine, and the drum machine's name was Clavis Atlas. <laughs> well, you know, the funny thing about that, I was looking for a name for the character, and so I thought, well, now let's see. Clay, this guy's father's name is Clay. His mama's name is Mavis. So we'll call him Clavis. Clavis Isley. So we put these songs out on MP3 or in something online, and Ronald... Your dad gets a text email from this guy out in Las Vegas. Well, a lot of the book takes place in Las Vegas. And this guy asked Ron, uh, where did you get the name? And Ron told him from the book, the, the novel that I'd written about it. And the guy's name living in Las Vegas was Clavis Isley. <laughs> really? <laughs> And he said, oh, that's my name. Oh. Well, the funny thing is, I mean, I researched, I went online, I, I put that name in there to try to find, is this anybody's name? And couldn't find anything on anybody. And because I wanted that original name, and damn, there wasn't a Clavis Asley in Las Vegas. You probably can't come up with an original name. No, no way. <laughs> well, I don't think so. And, and I was thinking, you know. I wish I'd have had I'd used the name Clavis Isley when I was cutting those records in Nashville. Yeah, no kid. <laughs> but but uh, anyway, we played for for about three three four years, practicing, and we played some gigs. And then uh, Ron bought a Harley Davidson, so they don't want to play music anymore. <laughs> so hey, well, he's been known just to quit on you. <laughs> I heard a story about that recently. So, I mean, right Where away. Where you going, Ron? Why are you walking out now? Come back. No, I'm just kidding. Had no bass player, no down, piano yeah. player. So Sharon and I buy a motorcycle, and we just quit playing. <laughs> that didn't last too long, though. No. no. Y'all uh, both came out of retirement to get back from... Well, that was in oh, around, name, yeah, right? around 2009, 2010. Oh, man. So y'all uh, were uh, riding the hogs for a while. Yeah, for, for about 10 years. Another thing that runs throughout any of these conversations is... Ten-year breaks. Well, yeah, Roger said it, man. You can walk away as long as you want to walk away from it. But if it's in you, it's in you. And everybody we've had... Has, it's never going to go away. It doesn't go away. You can set that guitar under the bed. You can do all those things you want to do, but you end up back doing it because you can't not do it it's the ultimate bring together man it brings it bring it brought you guys together i mean i'm looking at three westons right now in front of me it's pretty funny because y'all kind of look the same anyway and then, <laughs> <laughs> but uh you know to think that that it, it bridged the gap of of age like we've spoken of and, and brings you back from not playing after a while and brings you back from you know stopping the, the clavicite it's just so cool that, that that's been a three piece throughout all this is is you can set it aside you can do all those things but it always brings you back together the relationships that you form once you do that it's so much more important and valuable than anything else I, I think that listening to Larry Bond talk about it in the podcast we did with him and how what he said is true man there's nothing that that feels better than playing music and then playing music with people you love and and, and having that experience and you can set it down, you can walk away, it just never leaves you. Yep. It never does. Well, the beginnings of Ode to the New uh, wasn't Ode to the New. The, 
That's Western Band, right? And, well, it was even before that, because I think it might call it that, because I asked Ron and Brad to do the Fairdale Fair, and my oldest daughter, Andrea, was going to sing with us. So it was me and Andrea and Brad and Ron at the fair. I think it was the next year that Larry Bond saw us in 2010, or maybe, maybe it was 2009. I don't remember. But uh, we started really pulling old to the new together in, I think, 2010. That's what it shows on there. That's when uh, Brad started lying to Toy and just saying <laughs> there was jam session. Okay. And, and old to the new, I was watching some of the YouTube things. We were a damn good band. Tight. We were Super a tight. good band. Yep. It's it's good memories, but it's also yeah, you're sorry to see it end, you know. Well, that's not true. It's not over, man. And you're back in town. You're not snowboarding anymore. <laughs> so here's the thing. I asked that question to Larry Bond, and I know you know the answer mm -hmm. to it because I said, What what what's happening? It can be different without ending. Well, it's going to take a lot of practice. Well, it just depends. Maybe your standards change a little bit. <laughs> you know, if you ain't got a no. gig and you're just jamming, it's a different standard. You know, I don't know about that. I, I, I have the feeling if, like we, if we pull, you know, they want us to play for 45 minutes at that green space you opening. Kill it. If we pull together nine songs that we did the whole time, I bet we could... Knock them out quickly. I bet within a week you'd be back to where you were. I want to yeah. do love and touch and squeeze. Hey! <laughs> 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 <Woo>! Do it. <laughs> but it, all I need to know is the songs you want to do, so I can start working on those. So, how long did you have this bitterness? When did you let it go? When was it gone? <sighs> Fifteen. 20 minutes ago. That's <laughs> no. the way it works for me. I, I have no. to remind myself every now and again I let go of stuff. <laughs> no, I think probably about two years ago because... Two years ago, really? Yes. You still uh, harbored some of that during O2G days. Yeah. I was I was really full of anger and, and, and bitterness toward... I wrote a song uh, called Forget You. Is but that the real title, or are you, are you cleaning it, it like up? That is a euphemism. <laughs> does it say, when you're driving around well, it's, it's, uh, it's about, no. you know, these the, the pars in Nashville, you know, that yeah. in, and, and all I could say was forget you and the horse you rode in on. And and that was that was the most of the lines, forget you and the horse you rode in on. The de decisions I made caused a lot of hurt in my family. Mm -hmm. uh, my wife, my uh, it put them in jeopardy. Uh, my dad, my mom, it hurt them. And I beat myself up for 20 years. And I mean, I would sit in the basement, ate up with, with just guilt, beating myself up. Was it over more like the, the quitting the job, going on the road type yes, of stuff? Yes, yes. Yeah, because and you, then, you, you walked away from Harvester not too long before it ended up shutting down anyway, well, though, right? I'll, I'll be honest with you. We lost every friggin' thing we had yeah. because of my decision. Yeah. And when I was 42 years old, we had to start rebuilding. Mm -hmm. And that put my wife and family and my daughters in a on quicksand. And so, fortunately, contacts that I'd made at Harvester and things like that, you know, you can't do it on your own. You have to use any contact yeah. you can. And 
with their help, with, you know, by getting the jobs, good paying jobs. And I was able to build myself up to the point where everything's fine, you know, able to retire and all that kind of stuff. But but at that time, it was it was traumatic. Can, can I tell, let me just say yeah. something real quick, because I tell you what, the only difference between you and I and, and me not being in that situation right now is that I was married at 21. Mm-hmm. That I didn't have the success early, that, that I didn't have any, I didn't travel, I didn't go play music at other places, because I could see myself making that same decision right now Neil. at 40 years old if I had had those things. If I hadn't had that, you know, 19 years of marriage right now, I could not, I, I would have done the same, Andy, I'd have done the same thing. The, I, would have, I would have been in the same situation as you right now, because I could see myself making that decision. Sharon almost begged me not to quit Harvester because I was a manager there and I was making a good income. Mm -hmm. And the thing that hurt me the most was I told her, I said, I'm going to do it and you can go with me or you can keep your ass behind. Yeah. That ate me, ate me up for 20 years. Yeah. And then one day I was, one night, uh, I mean, and I, I was sitting there, and I thought, you know, she's forgiven me for all that. And we're in good shape, you sure. know. Uh, you know, uh, we can retire, and we don't have to worry about it. So I've been forgiven. So quit beating yourself up for it. Yeah. There you go. See, we all grow forever, man. We grow to the day we die. Yeah. Well. But, and, and Dad, you know, Dad invested a lot in me. I got so because he wanted to. Yeah, but I got so down with not able to support the family or anything playing music. I had to quit, mm-hmm. and so that let him him down. And it, it I bet it, it, I bet it didn't let him down. Well, I, it it did. It it had to have bothered him because he was he enjoyed it. He enjoyed the music business. I, he, I bet he enjoyed watching you be happy. Well, that was probably a lot of it because. But you know, that's also the other side of this coin we're talking about. The other thing too, I think there's probably a lot of people that would admire the extent and the energy and the effort that you put into it. Oh, dude, I do. And, I was sitting in this chair. I, I do. And it didn't work out, and you bounced back from it. Yeah, that's well, you got to. <clears throat> but now we're we're playing music, and uh, when we're in we're in Florida this past time for six months, we played in the. Church band down there with my mm-hmm. other brother Gary uh, on Saturday night and Sunday morning. We cut a Christian CD at uh, Kitchen Table Studios in uh, Palmetto, yeah. Florida. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and on Wednesdays we had a jam session in the fifty-five and over community down there. But how fun was that? It was fun. That's what I'm. It was talking fun. About, One man. of the guitar players there is. Played in a band for 35 years, same band for 35 years in Michigan. What? How do you do that? Do people do that? People play in one band for that long? Yeah. And uh, they live in Nashville, and he wants Sharon and I to come down there and spend a few days with them so, in the about. summer. So we're going to do that. There you go. Uh, and, we're, and now we're going to get the old to the new back to play yeah. some music. And uh, I'm already getting excited. Uh, I'm excited. Hey, I'll tell you it. what we got to do, though, man. 
We gotta make a little bit of room for uh, to have a, a guest on stage for one song. Who's hey, that? Who me? Neil Doctor. <laughs> All right. Yeah. yeah. I don't even need to sing, dude. Just let me play guitar. Let me do something. I'll play I'll play one of Larry Bond's 47 bongos. <laughs> oh, no, you won't. <laughs> Larry won't allow that. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, I want you to, uh, I want you to uh, every now and then throw a plug in for my Clavis Isley story on uh, yeah. Amazon, you I know? i got to be honest. I didn't know. I didn't well, even know there was. Twice. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know what Clavis Isley was until tonight. I didn't, so that really? I'm gonna. One of your buys will be from me, who will be reading that book. Hey, it's a good book. I read it. Yeah. Can I, hey, well, do you got it, it? Can I borrow it? I do have it. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Well, it, it's uh, it's got the second edition now, and the title of it now is the Clavis Isley story. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. All right, <laughs> uh, make it sell a few more yeah. copies. And uh, when you're writing things, you put in some things that happen. Yeah. True. <laughs> yeah. You know? So there's some true things in there that happen mixed with a lot of embellishment and, and nobody knows which is which. Well, it's kind of yeah. it's kind of why I asked the the question about the too much like Elvis song. I mean, yeah. you can write that as Clavis Asley and, and and fabricate any part that you need to fabricate, but man, there's a lot of truth to that. And I'm sure that that book if you really broke it down, there's a lot of truth to that book. Well, somebody asked me one time how much of that book was true. And I said, well, the mob was never after me. <laughs> and I told Sharon that somebody had asked me about it. And she said, well, you should have said, well, let your imagination be your dad. Yeah, that's it, it, you know? Well, man, I, I tell you what, I, I appreciate you uh, yeah, being as open and honest because I swear— I, a lot of uh, a lot of what you say resonates with me in a lot of ways, and I, and I completely see eye to eye and, and your decision making and some of the things you, that you even your regrets. I could see me doing the same thing now. I mean, I, not not now because of now, and, and I think I, I talk about it enough and am, am aware enough. But I, I think that me not having the success you had early was a lot of the reasons I wouldn't. But I see so many similarities in in the things that you say and in the in the way that I think and in some of those those things. So it's been very very eye opening for me uh, to to get this deep into conversation with you because we've never had any type of conversation oh, no, like this. No. So this is huge for me. You've I had really quite appreciate a, it. You've had quite an interesting life. And we're really only we're, we're this was a uh, twenty four years open, and then the next fifty years or forty was condensed. So we need to really probably get revisit this. We might have you back on we, in the we, future. We need to. We got we got uncondensed. It's like uh, now the, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have the Andy Weston thirties, Andy Weston forties, Andy Weston fifties, and then we'll skip you know his ten to thirteen year hiatus, and then, and then we'll come back to those different. We'll, we'll so. eventually get to those in the news. <laughs> no, but thanks for being on. It's been a, it's been enjoyable. It's I think been people awesome. have had a like really good time. I, I've probably man. said things I shouldn't. And we'll go out with uh, three in the morning. How's that? Well, uh, or would you rather hear too much like Elvis from start to finish? Uh, I'd like to sing an acapella song. No, for us right I would now. like <laughs> to have a little bit of my uh, contemporary Christian song played because I'm getting a lot of play on Spotify, uh -oh. iTunes, uh -oh. and uh, well, we'll go out YouTube. With that. Hey, all right. Well, here's, here's something else. We we went from real to real to Spotify, 
YouTube and yeah. iTunes. Yeah, how about that? Yeah. Right. So we're Just keeping up with the times, so man. Here's what we need to do. As you listen to this song, go give it a listen on Spotify. Go give it a follow. Are you on Spotify, Andy Weston? Or what is it? It's Andy. It's uh, When I Fall, Andy Weston on Spotify. There you go. And iTunes. Follow and by, YouTube. Do all the stuff you need to. Make sure you listen to it. Support us, guys. That's right. All right. Here it is. Contemporary Christian song written by Andy Weston. And my wife, Sharon, is accompanying me. When I fall. See you guys next week. Thanks again, Uncle Butch. Thank you, Brad. Neil. Thanks, sir. Life has dangerous curves. Temptation waits around each turn. I think I'm strong, then old ways return. I try to walk that narrow path, and again it just don't last. I find myself starting over again. Night can turn your head so 